welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello and welcome back to Materials People. Today I am joined by two people, one who studies ceramics kind of science and engineering discipline and one who practices ceramics as an art form. I am so pleased to introduce you to Alex Austin and Phoebe Collings-James. Hello guys and welcome. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Alex is a PhD student um, at Imperial College London. She studies as part of the Center for Doctoral Training in the Advanced Characterization of Materials. She studied material science at University of Oxford before studying at Imperial College London. And she's worked in Tokyo, Berlin, Switzerland, and continues to push her research here in London. Phoebe is a sculptor working across mediums to realize work that explores major universal themes, violence, sexuality, desire, and fear. Having studied fine art in London, her first experience with ceramics was in 2014 during the Vauvet Artist Residency in Italy. Immediately struck by the intensely transformative quality of ceramics and the haptic communication it encourages, she continued to study wheel-thrown and hand-built techniques while living in Brooklyn and developing ceramic forms into performance work, installations, and domestic objects. In 2019, Collins James moved home to East London to continue her ceramics journey in the neighborhood she grew up in. Mudbelly Ceramics Studio, her studio, uh, began as a personal practice and research outlet, but has since grown to encompass a shop and a roaming teaching facility offering free ceramics courses for Black people in London, taught by Black ceramicists. As a 2021 Freeland Ceramic Fellow, she had an, uh, an exhibition at Camden Arts Centre London in autumn 2021. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. So to begin, these are very different pathways, and I am very curious and keen to understand how you got here. So would one of you like to start us off on your journey? I had, I'll say, a fairly linear pathway to my PhD now. I didn't like take too many detours or really give it feel like I gave it that much thought. So I went to a state school in Widnes, which is a town near Liverpool where I'm from. Um, I enjoyed science at school and then I discovered material science on a summer school between year 12 and 13 at sixth form and I was like cool I like this this encompasses all of the aspects of physics that I thought I liked so then I went to university and ended up studying material science and during my course I had some great opportunities to do internship projects abroad that's how I ended up in Tokyo and Berlin and it was almost arbitrary landing on ceramics like I applied to a few different professors in Tokyo and the project that I got was based in a ceramics lab and I was like I like this I I like ceramics I like ceramics research so then when I applied for my the next internship I did in Berlin I sort of thought I would I would like to go down a ceramics path, so slightly focused my thoughts a little bit more. And then my master's project was also in ceramics. So by that point, I think I'd kind of, through no conscious decision, arrived at ceramics being my materials of interest. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do after I graduated, so I moved back home and worked in a corner shop while I figured out what I wanted to do and I applied for a few jobs I applied for the PhD that I'm doing now and after all those kind of weighing up all the options I decided I wanted to move to London 
and start my PhD. So that's how I ended up being a material science PhD student at Imperial. I feel like I have so many questions already, (laughs) which is great. I guess the reason why I wanted you to go first is because I felt as though Catherine sort of described my journey quite succinctly in the bio. And I guess maybe the parts that were not articulated were sort of, I guess, why I did all of those things or how how I ended up doing all of those things. And really it was through a desire, working with sculpture primarily, so going to university, having gone to a sort of sixth form college before that and only studying art and textiles and art history. So I was already at sort of 16 quite focused on this realm. I was also interested in history and English, but decided to just plunge right in. Then I went to art school. I did a sort of undergrad, um, no, what are they called? Foundation year. And then I did the undergraduate. And in that sort of period, I was working with many different materials. And I think the link between all of them was that they had what maybe you'll be able to better describe knowing science a lot better than me um was these sort of like either chemical processes chemical reactions and how I was sort of feeling them as these sort of transformational processes so whether that be working in a dark room doing photography and using the chemicals to see the image emerge working with plaster and resins so having to sort of either time processes or balance out materials so there was there was that element of sort of creating material objects through these sort of transformational processes that I was really enjoying and found lots of metaphors for sort of my artistic intentions were able to be weaved through those and I think what got me to ceramics was that I wanted to have a material that was more physically malleable in my hands and things like plaster ultimately all of these materials all of these sort of processes that I've described um they're pretty fixed in that you sort of you do one thing and then you do another thing and then you get your outcome whereas I think with ceramics there are just there's much until the point of firing and vitrification there is there are just so many more elements of malleability and molding and forming so that was sort of my desire and I started out just using air drying clay and then it took a while for me to sort of find access through the residency that Catherine mentioned to finally actually get to get my hands on like the the full entirety of a ceramic process and when I did I just completely fell in love with it and then each of my stepping stones have just been seeking out ways to sort of get get my hands on a studio and yeah that sort of took different forms residencies and then um, paying for night classes and different things like that. Ceramics like in the sort of form of you know you do in a studio really is quite hard to get into it's like the startup equipment you need and like finding a place to do it is can be quite expensive so like it's good that you had the opportunity to discover it in you know through your residencies and things yeah it's really hard and actually when I'm sort of working on sort of thinking about accessibility one of the elements is that the price can in terms of people accessing studios for pleasure or for you know to create artworks or whatever they might want to do um there is a barrier even for people running the studios that they just they often are not making a huge profit and it's still extremely expensive um and so yeah that is that is a big sort of part of it i think this actually uh brings me to a couple of questions that are related so first off um in an earlier conversation with Alex, we had a discussion about what the word ceramics means in different contexts. And I'm actually quite curious what ceramic actually means to both of you. And then I guess the, the, the extension to that is what tools, what kit do you use when you think about processing your ceramics? So 
Anyone can start. Oh, okay. I can go with like <laughs> scientific definition of a non-metallic, non-organic material. It can be crystalline, it can be amorphous, it can be a mixture of the two, and it has a very broad range of properties. They can insulate electrically, they can conduct electricity, you can have ones that fall in the middle and uh, semiconductors. They've got a really broad range of uses and properties, and I think they're kind of like, they are so ubiquitous, but I think the way most people think about ceramics is in the context maybe of art but they actually encompass so much of our everyday lives and things that we use like like what so for example like the if you live in a house made of bricks made of cement that's all ceramics um if in your phone the circuit boards and the electronics that enable us to communicate with each other they're all made of ceramics. Well, not completely ceramics, but ceramics form a part of the devices that, you know, enable us to have this conversation right now. Um, and then, yeah, they're also used as coatings to protect things from degradation, corrosion. They really are truly all around us and come in many varied forms. I really love that ubiquity. Yeah. Mm. I think about them... Probably mostly as a sort of human constructed molten rock is probably <laughs> the, the best way I often think about describing it. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think there's definitely overlap in a kind of approaches to the thinking because they, I mean, they do have to be molded and constructed to form so many of these ubiquitous items. Well, almost like what scale when you work with, with, ceramic materials at what scale do you, would you say in a day-to-day -day you're using them so clay or you might be molding a massive massive sculpture or like a smaller kind of piece or you know you might be looking at things through microscopes etc so I'm, I'm curious what scale of ceramics would you say that you tend to work with I mean I'm definitely using I guess in terms of thinking about clay as a sort of compound out of a bag I'm probably using for each work between, I don't know, two and 25 kilos of clay. But that clay is made out of various different materials. It's not just dug from the earth, as is sort of, I guess, the very sort of essentialist myth of the, of the potter sort of plunging their hand into the earth and pulling it out and just chucking it on a wheel. Mm -hmm. It's... Um, these are sort of mined and quarried materials that are constructed to make this sort of bag of clay that then you use. But what are some of the the things that distinguish a clay from just earth that you, that you would dig? Like maybe what are some of the things that you would need uh, in order for it to maybe behave? Well, just for the clay alone, and not the ceram and not yeah. the glaze. Yeah, I guess something like felspar. Or I, I don't know, it's basically, or it's the clay you use often isn't clay from the soil. And now I would like to know more, and I'm hoping Alex might have, <laughs> have some ah. input. But for example, something like China clay, which is um, in glazes, slips and clay, mm -hmm. the, you know, the clay sort of compound that you might use, that is created, it's, it's a sort of, I don't know if it's an element or not. I really didn't do that in science, but it's called kaolin. And it's it's made through a long process of sort of cracking and washing granite. So it's not really, so even that is extracted from rock mm -hmm. to then create new rock, you know? <laughs> so, it's, so, and I guess typically if you find what is called raw clay so actually just a clay soil yeah you might be able I mean you can always try and fire it it's likely to sort of crack and I guess just maybe the other things are sort of bonding agents mm -hmm. and homogenizing agents the other the other materials that you yeah. might usually put into the mix what it's really good for is coloring so things like slips so you might want to use it on the surface of a ceramic body yeah. like clay body 
<laughs> yeah, I think clay that, like, you can dig clay up out the ground and make something out of it, but you're not necessarily sure what else was in the ground at that time. And these, like, extra add-ins and things that you mix in change the properties of the clay. So, for example, the cracking, you might have a different volume change when you sinter it or fire it that means your structure there are internal stresses that cause your structure to break or like the clay that you perhaps buy off the shelf has had like has been engineered to optimize its properties by changing the constituents within it so you might add a little bit of one material to change the firing temperature or a little bit of a material that means it doesn't shrink as much when you sinter it or that changes the shrinkage to be something that is easy to work with and means that your final piece shrinks in a way that it doesn't distort and break or things like that. Yeah, I know we also think about we, the royal we of pottery people, <laughs> um, often think about, in terms of cracking, different temperatures at which... Um, different sort of vapors and gases might be being released so often under 200 centigrade that's when you might expect water vapor to be kind of let loose from the object and then there will also be a process of um, organic materials and their gases sort of being let out and that's the moment where you want to take it really slowly because if you do it too quickly that's the part of a process which really is going to cause cracking so that's mm. I can only imagine if you've got something that's dug straight up from the ground that might have all sorts in it of like decomposed animals and and plants and all sorts of things that that's going to be yeah adding adding to that process as well very interesting yeah uh, I I don't really work with like clays and um, porcelains or anything like that I work with sort of more single component systems so the whole of my material is made of one compound as it were it's not like a whereas i think clays are more of a mixture you mix in different minerals and chemicals that come together to make this the final material yeah like red iron oxide and things like that are sort of typical to sort of bring out certain colors and especially sort of rich red, red clay kind of colours. What are the materials that you are working with, Alex? So I'm studying magnesium silicate, which is, it's also known as olivine or peridot as a gemstone. Basically, this is the main rock you find in the upper mantle. So you've got the crust and then the mantle, the outer core and the core as you go through the earth. In the top part of the mantle, this makes up around 60% of it. So it's a really important material for the earth sciences to understand because if we can understand the behaviour of this, it can help us better inform models and understand the processes that are going on down inside the earth. So yeah, that's my material. I don't make it myself. Somebody else makes the powder and then they sinter it or into hooks or like little compacts that I then analyse. Did you say magnesium or manganese? Magnesium, Mg. Mg2SiO4. Yeah, that, that's my, my material. Nice. And what have you found out about it so far? Or mm. old to you? <laughs> oh, um, so I haven't really found out anything super new to me yet because... I'm still working on analysing it, but basically I'm looking at how the internal structure changes when you add water, because as I'm sure not many people will know, there are trace amounts of water dissolved in the upper mantle, and this changes the behaviour of the rocks. So it changes the fluid properties when you apply a force, like how it flows, it changes its melting point. And we don't really know why this happens. The properties that are affected by the presence of water are also properties where 
the internal structure really plays a part in the behavior of the material. So my research is hopefully seeing how the water affects the grain boundaries, both of which affect the macroscopic, the properties that we experience and can test. And it's a PhD, it's four years long, it's a, it's a slow, it's a slow process coming to find like discoveries. Yeah. And when you describe the the grain boundaries, what what do you what do you mean when you mesh when you mention the grain boundaries? I I have this analogy that was given to me by my supervisor when I first started my PhD that basically explains the importance of grain boundaries. So to go one step back, most um, a lot of materials that we use in our everyday lives are not made of a single piece of that material, like they are made of lots of little pieces stuck together. And it's the junctions between these grains, as we call them, that determine how they behave. So if you think of a sugar cube, like you'd get in a coffee shop. And then if you think of rock sugar, are you familiar with this? It's like an amber colored kind of crystal. And if you dissolve these into your drink, the sugar, the sugar cube dissolves really quickly whereas the rock sugar takes a long time to dissolve. And basically, these are both sugar. They're both made of the same material, but the sugar cube is made up of lots of little crystals of sugar stuck together, whereas the rock sugar is a single crystal. And we've, the properties of these two materials are different because of the presence of these little regions, interfaces, grain boundaries between the pieces of um, sugar in the sugar cube so this is why we're interested in interfaces and yeah I could go back and talk should I talk about crystals like yes please okay <laughs> a crystal is basically a repeating pattern of atoms and every so metals are crystals ceramics sometimes are crystals, but basically it means that whatever atoms you have, the material itself is built up from the same unit repeating itself over and over again. And these are crystalline structures and most materials are made up of lots of these little crystals stuck together. And the region between these crystals where you don't have the same repeating unit next to each other because it's been shifted slightly and then stuck together. The regions between these two crystals, um, they might have a slightly different structure. You might have slightly different atoms next to each other. You might have more space between the atoms. And because of all this, it changes the properties that that bit of the material has versus the properties where all of the atoms are in a defined place next to neighbors that they expect to have so this can increase the bond energy at the interfaces which changes how it responds to different things like it might enable um atoms to infiltrate it more easily so this is when we get problems with corrosion and things breaking down because this more open structure has enabled another sort of species to come in and cause problems so like it's one of the grim Crystals are sort of, and crystals on that kind of level are something that I think most people aren't familiar with. And I certainly only learned about them when I started my material science degree. Like it's a, it's a whole world that has a massive effect, but it's not something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. If you have any questions or I wasn't clear, please. No, it, it was clear. It's just, I'm definitely going to have to listen to it over again and let it properly seep in. I don't think but, that was the most succinct um, description. It felt succinct, but and it also made me think about using crystalline glazes. And yeah. I was trying to sort of have the image of the kind of qualities that people are, are trying to sort of achieve when using them and trying to remember what I can see in them and their kind of... So um, what does a crystalline glaze mean to you? Well, crystalline glaze, I guess the way it would look, if I'm correct, is very glossy mm -hmm. and that you would maybe be able to 
see sort of cracks maybe under the surface or generally sort of an unevenness of mm. sort of yeah that there's sort of some something going like the surface would feel completely smooth but the bit sort of underneath the glassiness would look potentially a bit crackly and um maybe the colors would be shifting in tone so look a bit more like a gradient in places that's that's why I imagine from a crystalline glaze oh that sounds very pretty and being quite runny prone to being oh. quite runny which I don't know if that's because they need a lot of flux to do what they do in yeah. the kiln and go through their um and to create that effect you need them to run maybe yeah and and sort of what the I guess the flux is usually to, well, is to decrease the the melting point of of certain materials, especially in glazes. So, what what is a flux, Phoebe? Um, <laughs> is that like a like a like a component of the kiln, or is it like a property that you were trying to? Oh affect? no, flux would be a material, and so okay. many different materials could be flux could be used as fluxes. Okay. And they're meant to affect the temperature of the kind of overall ceramic as it's in the kiln being fired so that things run, like the, the glazes run a certain way. With a melting point or they form a liquid phase, a, like a liquid component yeah. that okay. aids, flu like it flows into gaps or it can run down to create something. That's what yeah. I the flux to be. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm quite curious as well on this. So we've kind of looked at ceramics from like the micro scale when we're looking at like how different units of these different ceramic compounds fit with each other in the kind of larger scheme of things. And there's a lot to do with structure here. And I know Phoebe, in your work, you also use clays, which are mixes of multiple different compounds that have all these different structures to kind of explore structures but not necessarily in well of course in a physical way because you're actively making something but then also structures as they relate to ideas and systemic uh, systemic structures and things like that and so I'm kind of curious as you look at structures from this micro scale what does it look like for you? I guess the macro scale is where I started and actually finally moving into my own studio this year has allowed me more time to actually begin to learn the long process of the chemical realm of glazing which I'm really only <laughs> touching the surface even though I've been sort of mixing my own glazes for a long time quite often it would just be following the recipe and you know starting to learn the names of these different materials and mixing them up and seeing what happens mm. via a sort of stricter recipe. Recently, I've been sort of actually trying to learn about which materials do what and why mm. as a way to also know how I can adapt them to, to sort of either create the types of surfaces that I want, so matte or satin or more glossy, and then also colour variations. So that's kind of and and likewise with the clay the clay bodies themselves wanting to sort of be able to do different things to the structure is, is definitely a, a newer thing to me the the sort of larger structure thinking about how ceramic how clay works when it transforms into ceramic as a kind of both strong durable um everlasting in a mostly impenetrable way mm. kind of material on one side and then also being fragile and prone to cracking and breaking those though that sort of friction or tension is something that I've found useful in terms of exploring more structural ideas in relation to bodies and um, human bodies, structural systems, uh, yeah, oppressive systems, liberatory systems, all sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if that's very good. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, I think it's very expressive and exploratory and, and it speaks to a, a different side to research 
like as you kind of get to know a material from the making the craft the digging deeper into the areas that are like hmm like i wonder what this is about that there's a, there's a there's a curiosity and and a kind of play that i kind of picture in this yeah and i'll often kind of hear a word and sort of learn learn about a, new, a word's meaning mm. for example something like tensile materials which is often used for things that are sort of maybe woven or netting and things like this um and thinking about it as how it sort of like pertains to something like ceramic mm. moments where things can the different processes that you can use where that sort of like can quite literally and sort of philosophically be imbued and figure out through learning new techniques and applying techniques to sculptural ideas um I guess finding different ways to explore that as examples the difference between throwing things on a wheel with that kind of centrifugal force and sort of what it does to sort of creating quite if especially if you know what you're doing, if you're sort of like as as you learn and sort of become better at using a wheel um you become off you find often you can create quite a sort of like homogenized even surface um that will be i i don't know adept at kind of forming certain shapes which can become a way to sort of strengthen strengthen a form or open up an idea whether that be a sort of vessel a bowl a, a plate and then I've used some of those sort of tactics to then create sculptures so for example creating a bell form using thrown plate type um, forms on the wheel with concentric lines sort of dug into them to create a kind of I don't know, slightly psychedelic, spirally looking mm. um, sheet of clay and then using that to form these large bells was a way to sort of, I don't know, tangle in these different ideas of of strength and techniques and motion. I think that's, yeah, maybe one example of yeah. how. Um, I think something that you highlighted that's really interesting as well is the kind of contradictions that are present in ceramic materials that something can be fragile and yet strong delicate and yet heavy and I'm really curious in both of your practices how you engage with these contradictions like it is was that interesting to me when you said a tensile material and a, to me something in like a tensile material would be something that you pull on you put a tensile force on it and Ceramics are notoriously bad structurally and property-wise for these kind of tensile and in compression applications. So it was interesting when you said that you were trying to... To me, the meaning of the word tensile is sort of not a word that I associate with ceramics performing particularly well in. So it's interesting that you were trying to take inspiration from that word for your work but yeah obviously and, it means something different to you well no but it kind of I guess I'm potentially looking at the limits of that mm. tense whatever the plural is tensality tensileness <laughs> um, um because when I was making these sort of thrown plate forms on the wheel the next thing I did was throw them around and what you can start to see is the fact that as that um, pressure is is sort of put on them, the, the sort of um, grain, no, not, yeah. I don't know, whatever it is, it's almost, it's like paper, actually. The I think in clays, you've got like a kind of more fluid phase mm -hmm. and you have like particles of something else in. Yeah, like so it was when like you pull it dandy or not. And components. Yeah, and that sort of stretching can... I guess it can it can withstand up to a certain point and then it is going to fall apart. But I guess what I'm then interested in is sort of pushing it to that limit with also the knowledge that I guess the, 
the word tensile comes back in and the fact that it can just be pushed back together and reformed, which I guess is it doesn't reform in exactly the same way. So it's not kind of doing the accordion yeah. um, pressure. So but yeah. In material science, we'd say it behaves plastically in that when you deform it, it keeps its shape after you've applied that force. Whereas something that behaves elastically, if you apply a force and pull it, mm. it then goes back to its original shape. So plastic is definitely a word that is used in, I, you know, even in pottery sort of spaces, mm -hmm. I hear you a lot. Yeah talking about how plastic it is and often in relation to how much sort of aggregate of of sand or graininess it's, yeah. it has so phoebe when you when you say plastic being used by potters do you mean it in the in the same way of you know when you pull it it stays in that shape or does it have a different connotation a different meaning no i think it means the same i think it means the same which yeah. is why some like porcelain especially is often described as being very plastic and mm. something that you might want to use for the wheel you would go for something that's more plastic whereas something that you're hand building you'd kind of want it to have a lot of a lot more grain and other materials in it mm. so that it could kind of form that same structure that a brick might or mm. yeah give, give you the strength I guess on a wheel, you're really relying on the material to flow, like, mm. like sort of, you don't want to have to put too much force in order to shape it. Like you want it to be able to move more fluidly. Whereas with a brick, we're not trying to. You want how much you can shape it with your hands because you essentially pack it in and then fire it. And that's your final product. Yeah, and that compression of whether it's sort of a hand or a machine sort of really clapping something like a brick into shape is completely different to, especially when you watch people who have been doing it for decades, who are throwing on the wheel. It looks like they just, I mean, press it with the lightest touch and it moves exactly where they want it to be. Yeah, it's so impressive. It really Watching people throw. Yeah, it's like it's kind of magical. Like how how yeah. are these shapes just emerging from your fingertips? It's amazing. Um, so I guess as we come closer to the to the end of of this episode, which is kind of crazy, the time has really flown. Um, I wanted to ask for you, what are you excited about? What what parts of your ceramic research kind of still excite you or keep pushing you? What are you excited about for the future? Maybe hmm. that's a good question. I have to think about that for a minute. I don't know if Phoebe has something to say. I can go, but mine I think is maybe a bit of repetition in that I'm interested in learning more about the materials I'm using, specifically trying to understand more where my ethics can be when using rare earth materials and the sort of ethics of the mining practices yeah quarrying and ex ex different extractive processes the labor conditions that were involved the extraction of the earth and i guess when you asked your question about what is the quantities that we're using i think one thing i've been thinking about is actually the amount of even the sort of so-called rare earth materials that i will be using are probably quite minute compared to industry and mm probably uses but yeah oh, i was just going to say that's interesting because that's also a big consideration for people doing material science at the moment like mm. you know we've got to a point where we can do lots of things but it's now can we make them in a more sustainable way can we make them recyclable are we you know reliant on these materials that are going to become scarce or are gained through exploitative means or are they geopolitically contentious? Like, it's a big consideration that comes into, like, the materials that people are choosing to research as well. This isn't me specifically, but generally it is a consideration for a lot of people trying to move away from these particularly rare earths as well because we don't have a lot of them and some of them can be a little bit nasty. Yeah, and I guess also in terms of moving towards certain energy processes and 
renewable energy processes, there will be a lot of these needing to be used. And obviously that's, again, not the same scale that I'm using. I guess my consideration is if I'm making artworks that are talking about consumption, violence, desire, all of these, any of the things that might be sort of incorporated, what is it to speak about them with the materials that are part of the process of some of these structures? And I don't have an answer yet, but one of my, I guess the beginning of that is to actually know what I'm using and know even kind of, though I might want to still use them poetically, know, really know the difference between plastic and elastic and tensile and how they apply and know about sort of the different properties of some of the oxides I'm using in particular and where they're sourced. And that at least being the beginning of the process. Yeah. I'm sure your oxides look a lot prettier than the same oxides that come out of our lab. Like <laughs> in what way? <laughs> I think when I when I think of ceramics research, a lot of like I think about my research group, the samples they produce are often like a round disc, maybe thirty millimeters across that is black or grey or an off-white colour and you know the they're a very specific form because they're easy to make and when you're looking at the properties of the material itself or how the processing has changed the internal structure of the materials then sort of we don't think so much about it's like macroscopic form mm. whereas you know ultimately the sort of research that people are doing to look inside these materials, ultimately they will have to go to be these more complicated, maybe not so poetic, but functional mm -hmm. structures. But yeah, it's. I do think your glazes look a lot prettier than the powders that are probably white in these very clinical bottles on shelves in the labs. And what would be the difference if you were to... You sort of like interrogate a copper oxide that I would have in my studio. What would it? Yeah. So you might think, you know, copper. I copper oxide specifically. I don't know about, but say, do you use zinc oxide ever? Yes. So that is right. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> but so these oxides can have interesting electrical properties, and if you're interested in how it performs how it behaves, how its other properties change. You don't need to think about the shape of the macroscopic body as a whole. You need to think about how the grains and the structure inside change. Yeah, and I actually I used it in something recently to, I wonder if it was to make something matte. Oh, perhaps. I used zinc oxide there and I had, I can't remember, I was reading about it. But I can't actually remember what it's used for. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to Google it because it's going to bother me. <laughs> like what people use it for. <laughs> yeah, it was a very specific recipe. Ah, so it's a semiconductor. So you can use it in device applications, like for making electrical components to do different things. Oh, so, yeah, in that respect, you would be very interested on what's going on at the kind of atomic grain scale. And yeah, you would process it into something that is, that you can, a shape that you can put in the machine you're using to test it. So the final form is usually in service of something. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. It's I functional. Think without really thinking about it from an artistic or evoking any other meaning from the shapes you make other than can it do what I want it to. So in your case, uh, Alex, what are some elements of ceramic research that you're very excited about or you're looking to dig further into um, either in your PhD or maybe outside of your PhD that might have caught your eye? So my PhD is fairly fundamental in it's gonna understanding the structure of interfaces and the types of interfaces in 
magnesium silicate from a like structural and geometrical point of view is contributes to the broader body of work on interfaces in all materials which is a really big field of research because of how much they affect their properties so i'm excited to form a small part of that wider um understanding of the structure of interfaces in materials and i'd say more generally ceramics research is at a stage where we're trying to do non-traditional things with ceramics like get them to behave in ways that we wouldn't expect a ceramic to behave traditionally like we associate them with being brittle or breaking really easily so like making them more tough and sort of ceramics as phoebe will know require pretty high temperatures in order to be processed so there's a lot of exciting work going on to bring the temperatures down to make them more um, environmentally friendly to produce so i think for yeah i'm interested to see just how people are going to make them better because mm -hmm. they're currently really useful but they have a couple of large and fundamental not flaws but challenges to overcome as we like move forwards so i think there's a lot of exciting work going on in ceramics at the moment from an engineering perspective the heat the heat yeah would be such an incredible thing if it were able to be lowered and get some of the same results yeah but sim similar it, it's tricky though definitely and you can maybe process something into a shape a very simple shape with lower temperatures but in doing that you've had to compromise on the mechanical properties or you know the de the final density you achieve there's people out there looking at it but it's certainly still a field being researched or even decreasing the amount of time you have to hold it at a temperature for so you can apply like an electric field or pressure and these all help to shorten your sintering times but they're still quite um experimental processes that people don't fully understand the fundamentals of how they work yet but and like i don't know how big an object they've applied to so i don't know if phoebe could use this on one of your pieces for example i mean i guess my version of this is slowly working towards just doing once firing on most of my work. Okay. And that means sometimes adding a few more hours on to the first firing, but it means not firing twice, which is a typical way of doing things that is a bit safer in terms of things not cracking or blowing up. So do you put your glazes onto the unfired dried but unfired clay and then yes oh, okay and it's a process that is very common in in the sense that it has been done by many potters for a long time mm -hmm. but it isn't the majority way of doing things um, mostly because if work isn't dry enough if it goes up too quickly and if it does end up exploding in the kiln you've then got this kind of molten glazy clay sticking to everything whereas if you have an explosion at bisque stage you've just got kind of dry hard clay it's exploded everywhere you can so, hoover it up or you can hoover it up and it will it will it won't stick to anything basically it can just be hoovered and dusted off and so yeah, you just have to be skilled. It's a lot easier to do with pottery because, again, for the drying time, the work is usually more even and it, it's able to dry quicker and you usually wouldn't have as many sort of thick patches. But with sculpture, it can be trickier because quite often it's very uneven and, yeah, lots of danger spots. And then the other point is to adapt the glazes sometimes so that they actually work in the way you want them to and sort of put them on at the right point in in the clay's dryness and anyway there's that <laughs> sort of like that that's one thing that's already developed in terms of sort of 
battling this energy usage. That's very cool. You, you're a scientist. You just, you know, you're not working towards <laughs> publishing something in a journal. You just solve a problem and get on with it. Yeah. Glory like the rest of <laughs> um I say yeah invest I know I know but I think also what is is potentially useful is maybe not to the kind of level of um of I don't know specific kind of routine that you must observe but just sort of creating logs and recording results those kind of just um habits I think are ones that I would like to get into which feel like they're definitely part of a, a scientific realm of actually remembering what you've done and what happened yeah I it think was that's quite fundamental <laughs> I think that's a big part of things making like keeping a good record that proves that your results can be you know reproduced by someone else like if only if you're the only person that can get this experiment to work, it's like you have to start yeah. questioning whether, you know, it's something to do with your setup or if it is actually something that you've observed to be true. If no one else can see it, you have to call in all these other questions. But yeah, I think no matter how good a record you keep, I can still look back at notes I made six months ago and be like what was I doing that day? <laughs> what were the variables of my yeah. day? <laughs> oh no, I have so many notebooks. I, I like to write everything down because even if it's not something super specific or like directly related to that experiment, it might help prompt me rem to remember something about what I did that day. And it then brings like other things back. But yeah, take a lot of notes. Write down your quantity. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, well, guys, I, I really can't thank you enough for um, today's conversation. It was really, really lovely learning about your work from both of your different perspectives um, and learning a bit more about like the ethics behind ceramics, like the, the ways that the kind of technical interface with the craft. I think it, I feel I, I have taken for granted that ceramics are a thing that have always been. And so there's a lot of research and ongoing work and ongoing expression using this medium, but it's it's interesting to hear how much learning is still happening in this space and with this material and the many, many different ways that it's used. So um, thank you both so much for sharing your perspective. Um, I've learned a lot today. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing us together. Yeah, it's been super interesting. Like information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify <laughs>